Early on the morning of September 8, 1886, Lieutenant Robert F. Ames was galloping like mad. He was trying to find Captain Henry Lawton's camp, which was roughly six miles south of Fort Bowie. And I won't pretend to know why he was going so fast, or why he was trying to find Lawton's camp at all before sunrise that particular morning. My sources simply don't say. But what we do know is that he found the camp, and came riding in very fast and making a lot of noise, waking up everyone in the process. And this set the whole camp into motion, especially the large contingent of Apache who suddenly heard the tumult of an army horse rushing into their space. So they did what their instincts told them to do, what they always did. They scattered. And it's because of this that Assistant Surgeon Leonard Wood would characterize Ames's actions as nothing short of idiotic. Now, the army soldiers would eventually be able to round up the Apache again, though they did discover that two men, a teenage boy, three women, and one child had used the opportunity to escape, heading back south to their usual stomping grounds in Mexico. Despite this, though, I can't imagine that the soldiers were all too concerned about this group that had slipped out from underneath them. Why, you ask? Mainly because they still had, very tightly secured and disarmed, their real prize. None other than the wily renegade himself, Geronimo, who just four days earlier had brought a 25-year conflict to a close when he had finally agreed to surrender. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Episode 114, All Chiricahua Must Go. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we watched as years of attrition finally wore down enough on Geronimo that he agreed to meet with General Nelson Miles and discuss surrender. The last five months after fleeing from Crook had not been easy. They had lost their herds and possessions, and literally everyone was out to get them. Remember what the scout Kayata had told him, Geronimo didn't have a friend anywhere in the world. So when Lieutenant Charles Gatewood, who he knew and trusted, told him it was better to deal with Miles, he decided that it was time to deal with Miles. The thing is, given what's about to happen, I honestly can't say what would have been better, accepting Miles's deal or simply fighting it out until the bitter end. To understand what I mean, we have to turn our attention back to what Miles had been up to in August 1886, while Lawton, Gatewood, and the rest had been ever so slowly searching for renegades in Mexico. You might recall from two episodes ago that after a White House meeting at the end of July, General Philip Sheridan had sent an inquiry to Miles about if the president decided to remove the Chiricahua from Arizona, and it came down to using force, could the army handle it? On August 2nd, Miles responded with something of a pros and cons list about the whole removal idea. It went a little something like this. Pro. The American settlers would love getting rid of every single last Apache they could, especially the Chiricahua. Pro. 
With the Chiricahua gone, the U.S. Army could wind down all the forces it had in the territory or redistribute them to other needed areas like, say, along the Mexican border. Con. The Chiricahua themselves would consider it a huge breach of faith, and other tribes might become reluctant to send delegations to Washington because look what happened to his people while Chatta was meeting with the president. Con. The Eastern press, always more sympathetic than their Western counterparts, and humanitarian groups would loudly object to moving a desert mountain people like the Chiricahua to the more tropical climate of Florida. Con. It might harden the resolve of the hostiles as they would expect harsher treatment than their relatives. If you just royally hose over everyone on the reservation, what are they going to think you're going to do to them? For his part, Miles was still in favor of deportation, but pressed to send them somewhere, anywhere that was less likely to slowly kill them with tropical diseases. His solution was, as always, the Indian territories in Oklahoma. However, as I've said before, I forget how many times, this plan was a non-starter because Sheridan just didn't feel like he could trust the Chiricahua west of the Missouri River. Also, it would literally require Congress to change the law in order to allow the Chiricahua to settle there. Meanwhile, the powers that be in Washington were all starting to endorse the idea of just taking the Chiricahua out of Arizona. First, the Secretary of the Interior endorsed the plan, followed by the Governor of New Mexico, and then the Secretary of War. And it's here that Captain Joseph Dorst, who was the handler for the Chiricahua delegation, even then heading back west, was instructed to keep them holed up at Fort Leavenworth because their removal seemed imminent. But the final nail in the coffin came on August 24th, 1886, just a day before Gatewood sat down with Geronimo to tell him that he must surrender. That's when President Grover Cleveland issued the final word on the matter. And his decision? All the Chiricahua had to go. Not just the rebels still under arms. Not just those who participated in the last breakout. Not just anyone who participated in any breakout. But every single man, woman, and child had to be shipped off to Florida. Miles was made aware of this decision immediately, and he set the wheels in motion to obey the president's orders. He was hampered by the fact that the telegraph wires to Fort Apache were down, which is actually much worse than what it sounds like. Because word of Cleveland's decision was already starting to hit newspapers, and Miles was worried that the Chiricahua might get wind of it and then go into revolt before the army could get all its ducks in a row. However, he was finally able to get word up to Lieutenant Colonel James Wade, the commanding officer at Fort Apache, of the order before news leaked to the Apache. Wade decided to set things in motion on August 29th, the day when the Chiricahua came to the fort to receive their rations. But even up to this point, the very day before the double cross was to go down, Miles continued to object to the plan. On August 28th, he sent a message to Washington asking if the Chiricahua couldn't be sent to Fort Union in New Mexico and then maybe at some hazy point in the future they could be sent east. It seems like he was banking on the Chiricahua getting to stay in the Southwest, 
and maybe the government would forget that they were still there. But, alas, it was too little too late. This last proposition was never seriously considered. Wade had announced to his chargers that when they came into the fort for their rations, there would also be a roll call. That was slightly puzzling to the Chiricahua, but with their leaders away in Washington, there was no organized effort to question Wade about these orders. As Wade was gathering everyone for what they expected was their rations, Miles was sitting down in Wilcox, hovering over the shoulder of a telegraph operator. The operator's counterpart at Fort Apache had a very good view of what was happening and was wiring Miles a blow-by-blow report of what he saw. And, according to this operator, this is how it went down. At noon, the Chiricahua all lined up to receive their rations. Then they saw a large force of cavalry come out of nowhere, looking like they were ready to go somewhere, except they didn't leave the fort. They joined with the White Mountain Apache scouts to surround the Chiricahua. These were part of four troops of cavalry that Miles had sent from various other forts to back up Wade, just in case things went south. The Chiricahua were dumbfounded. They had no idea what was happening and what, if anything, they were supposed to do. Remember, all their leaders were away. They were kind of paralyzed. Still, this could have all devolved into violence if Wade hadn't personally stepped in to assure the now prisoners that no harm would befall them. Trusting in Wade, and again wildly bewildered, the Chiricahua then were seated on the ground. Now came the hammerfall. Soldiers went up to all the men, including those who had served so ably as scouts, and systematically disarmed them. For many, especially those from the Chukonan band, this was the first time they had been forced to give up their weapons. The fact that this happened now without incident shows that the Chiricahua had now become powerless, metaphorically and then quite literally. Wade had the women and children taken to a set-up camp right outside the fort. The men, in the meantime, were all crowded into a horse barn, where they were told that the government had decided to move them all to a new place. Wade insisted that the soldiers wanted peace, but when you make that kind of pronouncement to a barn full of people you are keeping hostage, it kind of loses its meaning. The Chiricahua men would sit and stew in that barn for the next nine days, still reeling from what had happened. They just could not get their head around it. Many had served as faithful scouts under Crook, Crawford, and Lieutenant Britton Davis. They had made hard choices and sacrificed much to bring in any hostile renegades. And after their enlistments had ended, they had stayed on the reservation and farmed, causing no trouble for the White Eyes, who were now everywhere in the territory that was once labeled the Apacheria. In short, they had done nothing wrong, and certainly nothing to deserve this treatment. Historian Edwin R. Sweeney says that years later, a Chiricahua man, who was merely a child at the time, placed the blame for all of this directly on Geronimo. This sentiment, which has a lot of merit, would be felt among the peaceful Chiricahua well into the 20th century. 
For narrative reasons, I'm going to wait to reveal the fate of this group, some 382 men, women, and children. Instead, we need to turn our attention to the next crisis that Miles faced, the looming meeting with Geronimo. Really, I should say the crisis he faced was avoiding the looming meeting with Geronimo. Because, yep, Miles really didn't want to meet with him at all. Now, I haven't seen it written down exactly why he was trying to pass the buck, though Sweeney says that Miles didn't want to have this meeting unless it was with Geronimo in shackles or with Geronimo's corpse. Originally, after receiving intelligence from Captain Lawton that Geronimo had agreed to meet and was on his way to the U.S. to do so, Miles told the captain to basically take care of it yourself and, you know, use your best judgment. His orders, as much as he gave them, were to tell the Apaches that the best thing to do was to surrender as prisoners of war and trust the government to do the right thing. Which is a pretty laughable request given what we just finished talking about. But Miles, who never fully understood or trusted the Apache, also sent along word that Lawton could feel free to achieve his objectives by whatever means necessary, no matter how underhanded or devious. At one point, he even suggested that Lawton lure Geronimo Nietzsche into his camp by saying that he had an urgent message from Miles and the president, and then just didn't allow them to leave. Lawton rejected these suggestions out of hand for the bad plans that they were, and kept insisting that Miles come himself. To which the general replied that he would only come if the hostiles sent along hostages as a show of good faith. He refused to fall into the same trap as Crook and allow them to slip away again after they had promised peace. But Miles' refusal to come was only making matters worse for Lawton. Geronimo and Nietzsche had not technically surrendered yet, but had only said that they were willing to do so and wanted to meet with Miles about what surrender would look like. They still were in their own camp, separate from the soldiers, and moving semi-independently. In fact, in the last days of August, they were moving at such a fast clip that army soldiers asked them to slow it down a bit, which the Chiricahua promptly ignored. There were far too many soldiers. Mexican and American around the area for their taste, so they were not going to be idle until they at least got past the border. By August 31st, both the Chiricahua and most of the army units had passed into the United States and were holed up in Guadalupe Canyon in the Palencio Mountains. But Lawton wasn't with the main forces at this point. He had ridden off to find one of Miles' heliograph stations to try and get word out to the general about their location. So I guess you can say that the heliograph was useful in this instance. Though, as we are about to see, it would have been better if Lawton had been in camp. With the captain gone, the group camping near Geronimo was led by Lieutenant Abiel Smith, a strong-headed 12-year army veteran. But before leaving, Lawton had talked privately with Smith and made the mistake of telling him of Miles' orders to be underhanded if he needed to. Lawton had then confided in the lieutenant that he wasn't sure of his ability to deliver the Chiricahua to Miles' promised. And that's when Smith said something that, if this were a TV show, would have been framed with minor key ominous music and a slow zoom in on a cunning look on his face. 
Smith actually said, quote, I haven't promised them, the Apache, anything. You communicate with Miles, and I'll take command, end quote. Yeah, because that's not a herald of bad things to come. Turns out Smith had decided that Miles' attitude justified bringing in Geronimo and the rest by force, and he started talking to his fellow soldiers about doing just that. He talked openly about surrounding the Apache to prevent them from even thinking of breaking out. And this was not a good move, considering that the Apache were mingling with his camp, and so some of them naturally overheard the rumblings from the soldiers about turning on them. Fear and suspicion started flowing through the Chiricahua camp, and on the American side, the soldiers were agitated, thinking that a surprise move was about to go down. Eventually, it fell to Lieutenant Gatewood to end what could have been an explosive situation. Smith belligerently demanded an audience with the Chiricahua, something that Gatewood flatly told him was not going to happen. Smith again demanded to see the Apache, telling him that he outranked Gatewood. And, you know, this was true. They were both lieutenants, but Smith had seniority. For Gatewood to stand between his countrymen and Geronimo was an act of bravery on his part, as Smith had behind him several men, including Leonard Wood, the surgeon-turned-soldier that had been campaigning with Lawton since June. By some accounts, Gatewood made a dramatic show of things, declaring that he would blow the brains out of any man who tried anything. And this seems to have been enough to restore people to their senses, and riders were dispatched to bring Lawton back into the camp as soon as possible to calm things down further. And the captain did arrive later that night and went straight to the Apache, where he took supper with them and calmed any tensions on their part. Still, despite his bravery, Gatewood decided that he wanted out. He had never really wanted to be there in the first place, and had done everything, short of pulling a full clinger and putting on a dress, to get out of having to complete his mission. So again, even after a pretty heroic defense of the Apache, he came to Lawton and said that he wanted to take his baggage and be part of a different column. But the captain wouldn't let him go arguing that until this business was put to bed, he needed Gatewood there to keep things calm, and he was prepared to keep the lieutenant there by force if necessary. So that was that. Gatewood would be forced to see things through to the end. Of course, what that end would be was still a little bit in the air, because Miles still hadn't officially agreed to meet with Geronimo, by September 2nd, 1886, the Chiricahua and the Americans had reached Skeleton Canyon, where the talks were supposed to get underway. Lawton would write to his wife that same day that, quote, I cannot get Miles to come out, and the Indians are getting uneasy about it, end quote. And the pressure of just getting to that point was beginning to weigh on him. He confessed in private, quote, I regretted a thousand times that Lieutenant Gatewood found my command. End quote. Luckily for everyone's sanity, on the morning of September 3rd, Lawton received words from Miles that indeed he was coming and he would be there that afternoon. Perhaps sensing that his man on the ground didn't support either his tactics or his desire to be hands off with the Chiricahua, the general had done an about face 
and decided to meet the infamous Geronimo after all. He had actually tried to rope in Dos Tesse, Nightshade's mother, to come and help negotiate on his behalf, but the old woman refused. Nightshade, she said, was an ungrateful son, and she would much rather go live with her daughter who had married a western Apache man and lived down at San Carlos. Miles rode into Skeleton Canyon around 3 p.m. on September 3, 1886. And there, at the mouth of the canyon, the brave peacock and the wily renegade finally met face-to-face and exchanged a handshake. The interpreter introduced Miles to Geronimo as a friend, to which Geronimo instantly replied, quote, I have been in need of friends. Why has he not been with me? End quote. This joke seems to have instantly cut the tension, and the two sat down to discuss the matter at hand. Miles would later describe Geronimo as, quote, He was one of the brightest, most resolute, determined-looking men that I have ever encountered. He had the clearest, sharpest, dark eye I think I have ever seen, unless it was that of General Sherman when he was at the prime of life, end quote. I'm going to sort of blend three different accounts of this meeting together because each has details that I believe are plausible and together they paint a fairly interesting story. So, for example, Geronimo once again launched into how he had been wronged by everyone in his dog, but especially Mickey Free. And unlike Crook, who was surly and dismissive during their last meeting, Miles was respectful, engaged, and listened patiently. Here, finally, was an American soldier Geronimo felt he could engage with. And so he asked to live at Turkey Creek again with his family. However, the general's terms had not changed one bit. He replied, quote, Lay down your arms and come with me to Fort Bowie, and in five days you will see your families now in Florida with Chihuahua, and no harm will come to you. End quote. After listening to the general reiterate what he had been told before, Geronimo supposedly turned to Gatewood and said, quote, Good, he told the truth. End quote. And then he stood, shook Miles's hand, and said that he would surrender, no matter what everyone else did. He is also supposed to have told Miles, quote, This is the fourth time I have surrendered. End quote. To which the general said, quote, And I think it is the last time. End quote. You might be asking yourself right about now, where the heck is Nietzsche in all of this? He's been right there with Geronimo during the last few years. Why isn't he being mentioned? Well, the logical answer is because he wasn't there. He had actually stayed away, waiting for word from a member of his band who was just across the border in Mexico trying to find a lost horse. It wasn't until the next day, September 4th, that Geronimo would bring Nietzsche to meet with Miles. Nietzsche was very mistrusting of the general, but eventually gave his word that he too would surrender. And this is actually a bigger deal than what Geronimo had said the previous day. There is no doubt that over the last two and a half years, Geronimo had been a leader among the Chiricahua that were with him, and that Nietzsche had been deferring to him more and more. But still, Nietzsche was the son of Cochise, He was supposed to be the chief of his people, and he commanded a larger following than Geronimo. 
So him surrendering was really the end of the affair. On this second day, Miles is supposed to have explained how things would go down from here. He drew a line in the dirt and said it represented the ocean. He then put a rock next to it, saying that was Fort Marion. Another rock represented Geronimo, and a third further away rock represented the Chiricahua at Fort Apache. What the president wanted to do, Miles explained while moving the rocks to the same place, was put them all together. I think you could agree that this sounded pretty good to the Renegades, and it certainly did to Geronimo, who had great trust in Miles now. Trust that would ultimately prove to be misplaced, because as Geronimo biographer Robert M. Udley points out, he didn't realize exactly how little control Miles had over what happened to his people. But still, we've reached this point, where Geronimo has officially surrendered. This is it. This is the end of the Apache Wars, right here. What started with the Bascom Affair and Cochise in January 1861, or episode 35 for you longtime listeners, now ended here in September of 1886. But I want to point out a couple things about the end to this conflict. First off, please notice what really brought everything to this end. Two Chiricahua scouts and a trustworthy army officer bringing a peace offering to Geronimo. Now think back, what does that sound like to you? If you said in your head right now, well, that sounds like Crook's plan, you would be right. For all of his bluster and desire to militarily overwhelm the Apache, not to mention his fancy heliographs, it was only when he tried negotiation did Miles succeed. In fact, despite the raiding that had been occurring for the last couple of years, conflicts between the army and the rebels had been exceedingly sparse, amounting to just a couple of skirmishes, really. And Geronimo Nietzsche had managed to evade capture, retreating into the inhospitable deserts of Mexico. You can argue that these raids wore down the Chiricahua's resolve, but in the end, it was only when Geronimo saw a chance for the best possible terms, lousy as they may be, did he decide to stop fighting. As I read about the Apache Wars, my thoughts are that Crook is really the one who loosened the jar and then all Miles had to do was pop off the lid, and he did that by being a little more like Crook. Though even I have to admit that it was Miles's glad-handing nature, so different from the abrasive crook, that made the negotiations with Geronimo a success. Now, you can't usually argue about things that didn't happen, but I can't help but feel that if Crook had managed to hang in one more year, he may have been able to sew up this loose end. Or, you know, I could be completely wrong about that one. Once I finish my machine to explore alternate timelines, I'll let you know. The second thing I want to point out is that for the past two years, Geronimo's name was appearing regularly in the newspapers, almost on a daily basis. His fame, which extends well into our own day, comes mainly from this period, following his breakout from Turkey Creek up to his surrender at Skeleton Canyon. 
Of course, as we'll see, Geronimo also spent a great deal of time during his imprisonment enjoying the national spotlight, which also helped contribute to his notoriety. And no disrespect for him, but I think this is a detriment to the Apache as a whole. I can't deny that he is a fascinating historical figure worthy of study, but his position in the public consciousness kind of overshadows everyone else. I think it's a shame that he is the most famous of the Apache, and that more people, outside of us history nerds at least, don't know more about the other leading Cherokee, like Naiche, Chihuahua, Loco, Benito, and Chato. And it's almost distressing to me that even towering figures such as Cochise, the Great and Terrible, and Mangus Coloradas are overlooked because everyone wants to know more about Geronimo. Like I said, it's not like he doesn't deserve a book or two, but he's not the end-all and be-all of Chiricahua Hostiles. Which is something I hope you've taken away from our very thorough look at this subject. Plus, Geronimo's notoriety is also a shame in one more immediate way. He was the face of the hostile Amerindian, the last vestiges of savagery that the mighty American army had to wipe away before they could truly tame the frontier. And when the average citizen spends every day for two years being told that Geronimo was raiding here and there committing so many atrocities, well, it was definitely enough to prejudice everyone against his people. As I mentioned before, many of the Chiricahua, who would spend decades as prisoners of war, will be blaming Geronimo for their lot in life well into the 1900s. Speaking of those Chiricahua, when we come back next week, it will be time to add one long, sad epilogue to their story. So join me next time as they are all unceremoniously dumped onto a train only to be unceremoniously dumped in Florida where disease and lack of care by the government will take heavy tolls. Because though they are now officially over, the Apache Wars still have one giant head-shaking injustice left to display. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.